Welcome, friends. Great to have you with us tonight. Uh, so relieved that it's not just me and Lil that turned up for the, the evening meeting. Some people have said to me, what is critical theory? And I've said, well, you need to come on Monday night to hear about it. I don't want to tell you what it is before you can hear about it from Mervyn, which was me, it was just code for me saying I haven't the faintest clue I need Monday night as much as anybody else. So it's great that you could be here to learn about it. For some of you, you're in a bit of shock because you've never sat on the maroon chairs before. <laughs> this is what it feels like. So thanks for coming close. Friends, um, it's a real joy for me tonight to invite um, Mervyn, who's a, a long-standing friend of mine and a mentor um, and a disciple of me. Uh, Mervyn was the rector of this church when I was a student at this university a lifetime ago. And Mervyn, I know that you've been a friend of this church and you've been jealous for this church over many years. And we're so grateful to God for you, for your gifts, for your leadership, and for your presence with us tonight. So I'm glad to welcome you. I'm sure you'd like to give him a warm CCST welcome. Thank you, Grant. Anything good in what he does, that was me. <laughs> Anything bad was his dad. <laughs> Those of you who don't know, his dad was our long-standing presiding bishop and the founding pastor, actually, of the church in which I was converted uh, 41 years ago, and I'm of, now, of which I am now, the, have been the rector for the last 17 years. So, yeah. Retifs and I go way back. Um, it's a real joy for me to be with you. Uh, thank you for coming. Um, I said to Grant, normally it was, especially come the winter, it was me and the cat. But Grant tells me he's never seen the cat. So maybe the cat has left these hallowed halls. There was always a cat that used to wander in during services back in the 80s. Maybe that cat's kittens have emigrated. Oh, that's the latest thing. So maybe they've moved away. Okay, let me um, do two things. The one is to commit our evening to the Lord uh, because we are here um, in his presence and it's always good to acknowledge that. And then I'll tell you what we are going to try and do tonight and what we are not going to do tonight. So let me pray and then we'll get down to it. Father, we thank you for um, the privilege of being together we counted an enormous privilege, um, even with the challenges around us in our society. Um, we thank you that in this country, we have this great freedom to be able to meet and think and talk openly and without fear of official persecution. And even as we do this tonight, we think of our many brothers and sisters across the world for those of us who are Christians, who can't meet like this because to do so would be to endanger their lives. And we pray that you will give them grace to keep trusting you and that you will care for them every day. We commit our topic for tonight to you. Pray that you will give me clarity and wisdom and that for all of us, we will leave here tonight having made progress in our understanding and having come one step closer to the maturity that you want for your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You know you're dealing with a speaker in his mid-60s when he rocks up at the pulpit with paper, right? Um, so paper it is, with due respect to all the trees that have died, in the interest of my notes. So our theme for tonight is critical theory and Jesus. <clears throat> About Jesus, I know a good amount. I've walked with him for the last 41 years. And the truth is that even before I got to know him, he was already at work um, orchestrating my life. I became a Christian in my mid-twenties. I read physics and applied maths at university. Um, I had absolutely no interest in Christian things, although I came from a nominally Christian family. Uh, my mum was converted when I was at high school. Um, I, we, I grew up in Blum. Um, can anything good come out of Nazareth or Bloemfontein? Well, you must decide. Um, I grew up in Bloom. Um, I went to school there. I went to university there. I went to one of those schools that you know people went there because they tell you exactly. Um, but I grew up without any interest in Christian things at a personal level. I think somewhere along the line, my Christianity developed into a rank superstition. Uh, when I went away on holiday, I used to leave little notes around my bedroom saying, Jesus, please protect my hi-fi, um, and things to that effect. And often, come exams, I would pray, the sort of prayer, Lord, if you help me pass these exams, I'll never bother you again. Um, my mother, who became a real Christian in those days, prayed for me regularly. I spent my high school years, my university years, basically drinking, playing sport and music, um, often in that order, occasionally studying. How I managed to play any decent sport or get a degree is a miracle of grace. But somewhere along the line, I think the seeds of the gospel found their way into my heart and my mind. I was called up for national service after university. Um, I went to um, do my one basics at one side, and then I got sent down to Youngsfield to do the officer's course. Um, this is 1981. And um, <clears throat> I think in that time of serving in the army, both in training and then in combat, um, and, and as, a, as a combat officer, really, which I did right through my military training, I, I think in that time I came to see my personal need of something more. There was a real emptiness in me, actually. And somewhere along the line, a good friend of mine invited me to St. James Church, where I'm now the minister, and somewhere along that line, I think my heart was converted. It took probably another eight months for my head to catch up. Um, so I think my heart was drawn to Jesus long before I'd answered the questions that I had. So that's my story in terms of bringing me into the Christian faith. But ever since then, <clears throat> I have had an insatiable desire to read and to understand and I think that is a very, very important thing for all Christians. Um, that we should be educated people 
who read widely and who think deeply about life and everything else. Grant asked me how could he try and motivate this evening with some sort of subtitle. And I said to him, well, try something like trying to think deeply about all of life. Now, you might say to me, what in the world has that got to do with critical theory? And I think the first thing I want to say, before we even start talking about critical theory or what that may be, is that I am here tonight as someone who knows Jesus really well and who has been learning about critical theory over the last probably three or four years. Now, I want to frame it like that because maybe I should ask you this. How many of you in the room have actually, at university or in some other capacity, done any work on critical theory as a form of sociology and indeed of literary theory? Anybody? A few of you. So there are a few of you who've been dipping your toes into that world. Well, then you will know, as I know, that this is not some simple thing about which it's wise to be reductionistic, right? Um, I think one of the big mistakes that Christians make is that we are, and I'm going to use some language that might unsettle you, not swearing, but words that might unsettle you. I think one of the problems with us as Christians is that we are sometimes far too binary in the way we think about the world. So my experience of Christian reactions to critical race theory, which is a subset of critical theory in general, is that the reactions that I have seen have been binary reactions, by which I mean people either demonize the thing or deify it. So it's either the best thing ever or it's the worst thing ever. And what has bothered me about that is that there seems to be a lack of what we might call, in, well, not in philosophical terms, the excluded middle. So let me begin by saying that as we think about things like critical theory as Christians, and I'm assuming that the majority, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand at this point, but I'm assuming that the majority of us in this room have come here because this is our church or because we would consider ourselves to be Christians. You may be here as somebody who's not a Christian and you're just interested to hear what some Christian guy has to say about this. And I'm really pleased if that's you tonight. I'm really glad you're here. And if I don't answer all your questions, which I won't, or, or touch all the points that you think are important, which is highly unlikely given the breadth of the subject, then please forgive me, and I'm very happy to have a follow-up conversation in any way, shape, or form. But for those of us who are here as Christians, perhaps what this journey has taught me, so I started reading about critical race theory before the George Floyd incident, okay? That wasn't the trigger for me. I've actually been thinking about critical race theory because as a Christian, I have been thinking about our country and its history for a very long time. I am an Afrikaner. If you want to know that I'm an Afrikaner, let me tell you what my credentials are. First of all, I'm an Ilof. I was not in, in a little yellow world for metal nageslag, and I dream in Afrikaans. 
Okay, so that kind of settles it. And now, as I dream and dream, I can Afrikaans. And as a quarter, I don't say years Afrikaans. So, you know, I've had to grapple with our story as a country. And as a Christian, I've had to grapple with our story as a church. And as a member of this denomination, I have had to grapple with our story as a denomination in this country. So I've been doing a lot of thinking about this, and in the course of that journey, I have come across, particularly through critical race theory, the idea of critical theory, and I have been pushed to read and to think. But I'm not a specialist on critical theory, and I'm not claiming to be one. Okay, so let's get that right out of the way. Now, when we talk about critical theory, I think it's worth saying that you've got to think about not one thing, but two things. You've got to think about critical theory, capital C, capital T. And then you've got to think about critical theory, small c, small t. Capital C, capital T, small c, small t. And I guess for most of you, your encounter with critical theory will be in the small c, small t form. That is, you will, it, will have been, it will have come to you applied through gender studies or critical race theory or some other version of it, yeah? Critical theory, big C, big T, actually takes us back to the roots of both the philosophy and the movement, or the sociology, if you like, and the movement. And that takes us a long way back to the 1920s and 30s, to Frankfurt, and to the Frankfurt School of Sociology, and to the arrival in Frankfurt of a group of people who started thinking about society and its structures. Horkemeyer, Adorno, later Marcuse, and most famously, Jürgen Habermas, who I think is still with us, and probably a hundred. Remarkable man and an incredible thinker. Now, some of you will have met Habermas through literary theory, because he's done most of his work there, though his agenda has always been social change in politics. Habermas's great work has been to define democracy, but the work has been done in the world of literary theory. That's been the vehicle through which he has been trying to engage with society and its structures. Basically, that Frankfurt School and what we today know as critical theory, although it's had various incarnations over the time, involves a fusion of two things. Now, it's at this point that you, I'm afraid, are going to have to go and read, right? Well, I'm not afraid. I'm actually, it's a good thing to do. So you're going to have to go and read. You're going to have to find a working definition of Marxism, by which I mean actually Marxism, not some version of it, but Marx himself and what he stood for and what he believed. Now, there's an old book by David Bebbington called Patterns in History. It was written in the 1970s. And it's one of the best summary works. David is a Christian man, taught history at Stirling University in Scotland. 
It's one of the best books that I have read in terms of an accessibility to some of the big historical movements and the principle of historicism. That is how you write history. Historiography, sorry. That is how you write history. David Bebbington, a book called Patterns in History. It's an old book written in 77, 78, but brilliant summaries of these things. What critical theory was is a fusion of Marxism with historicism. That's where it had its roots. Now, historicism really uh, is, is a reaction against this belief that there are these universal principles in history and that the approach to history, and um, by the way, if I lose you along the way and you actually think, what in the world are you talking about? Just do me a favor, wave your hand around, and say, can you please stop and just explain something, all right? Please don't just listen to words. But that view of history that was the historical process, and you see it a little bit in Marx, uh, an offspring of progressivism, that, that there are these great forces and these driving forces in history that move the thing sort of inexorably along a, a pattern or a structure towards somewhere, uh, the idea of progress. The historicist view, which had its real gen genesis in Germany, said, no, 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 you can't just apply the same principles of natural sciences to history because the human being is different. So there was an idealistic approach, that is ideas drive rather than processes, and in the German context, historicism was an attempt to take people's particular culture seriously and how that culture shapes them and how that culture influences how they think. Now, even when I say that, you can begin to see the connections of the particular versus the general, the one and the many in philosophical terms. So historicism in Germany and Marxism fuse together. They reject the positivism of Kant and others, and they generate this way of thinking which we today know as critical theory. So there's a blend of Marxism and historicism in its roots, even though it has changed and morphed over the years. And basically, what they are looking for, and this is the key thing, they are looking for a tool to critique ideology. Okay? It's an attempt to develop a tool, a sociological tool, through which you can critique a set ideology. The goal really was to unmask that which hinders Verstegen, understanding. How do you get to the point where you can understand what is going on around you? What tool is there for us to really get to the inside of what is happening? Now, I'm using words very particularly here. So in the Frankfurt School, critical theory was born out of sociology on the one hand and literary studies, literary theory on the other. Capital C, capital T, the Frankfurt School, associated with a group of people, the most influential of whom in writing, Jürgen Habermas, 
small c, small t, the application of that way of thinking, historicism and Marxism fused together and morphed over time into a tool through which there can be critique, hence the word critical. Not critical in terms of running something down, but critical in terms of analyzing and understanding what is in front of you. Now, just in what I've said so far, if you leave out, you, I mean, you may react negatively to Marxism or not, but just in terms of what I've said so far, I think you will agree that in essence, a lot of this kind of, it makes sense, right? You say, well, we need to learn how to critique stuff and we recognize that the world is driven by various ideologies and it's not a bad thing to be able to look at these ideologies and critique them. And it's certainly not a bad thing to actually look at our present circumstance, the historicism, our moment in time, and ask ourselves, how do we actually understand what's going on? In other words, not just working at the life of head in the sand, but actually looking at what's happening and thinking about it and trying to analyze it and trying to understand it. But that's not the whole of critical theory because it wasn't just designed for critiquing. It was designed specifically to critique with a view to liberation or emancipation, to critique current ideology with a view to seeing people liberated from the things that oppose them, push them down, hold them back. Again, I think we would argue that that is a very noble concern. Yeah? You'd think. So, the next step in the process is to recognize or to, from the critical theory point of view, to see the link and now we come a bit closer to the bone, to see the link between ideology and structure. So the assumption is that various ideologies are maintained or indeed promoted through very particular structures. So we can hear the echoes of neo-Marxism in that, right? Structures reveal, but also embody, and more to the point, empower ideologies. So the critique of ideology, so the attempt to one, understand, two, to critique, three, to ask yourself the question, how does this ideology keep people down rather than liberating them? The next question becomes, how is this ideology embodied and empowered in our structures. And by the way, because we are talking about a sociology, this applies across the board, right? National structures in government, university structures in the way universities are organized, church structures in terms of denominations, you name it, life is put together and managed through structures, the structure of the 
family. So whatever structures there are, the goal of critical theory is to understand them, critique them, and bring about liberation. Now, the minute I say that, you can see that there's an assumption, right? Because if I say the goal is to bring about liberation, what is the assumption? What is the premise that is being conceded? That liberation has to happen. That there is, in fact, bondage. That structure and ideology is not a liberating thing, but is, in fact, always an enslaving thing. So what becomes an attempt to look at particular structures and particular events. So Richard Delgado has written a book which I'd recommend you read on critical race theory. It's basically set in American law and it basically is a, a piece of work on American jurisprudence and he's arguing how American law has basically served the white community and has not serve the black and Latino and minority communities in the United States. That's the essence of Delgado's work. Very interesting piece of work. But the assumption always is that the ideology, qua ideology, is always wrong. That it's not just that there is a wrong ideology, but that ideology in and of itself is wrong. And we move from a particular structure to all structure is oppressive. And this is where Havamas's work on democracy becomes interesting because, you know, when you and I hear the word democracy, we think a process by which one person, one vote, right, leading to governmental change. But that's not what he's talking about. Because for him, the state structure in and of itself and all the participating processes, including the democratic elective process, is in itself so bogged down in ideology that you have to actually break away from the entire process to a pure form of democracy, which I think has been his quest to really pursue this idea of the pure form of democracy. Built into all of this, thank you, Mr. Derrida, Foucault, Marcuse, Gelius, and et cetera, is a hermeneutic of suspicion. That is to say, Everything is approached from the point of view. So we've gone from critical to suspicious. And essentially within critical theory, there is now the hermeneutic of suspicion rather than what one writer has called it, Anthony Thistleton, the hermeneutic of potential or at least initial trust. So I'm old enough to have grown up with the hermeneutic of initial trust. It got us into quite a lot of trouble, mind you, <laughs> through my lifetime. You just assume that because people are in charge, they know what they're doing and that you can trust them, right? This weird my Afrikaanse achtergrond. Je weet pa weet beste, ma weet beste, opa en oma weet die beste van allemaal. Je kan die mense vertrouw. You can trust the structure. I grew up with a largely positive, trusting view. Of course, I'm older now, and I've realized that that was sometimes actually naive and sometimes just downright stupid. 
But it's a very far cry from having your eyes opened, your naivety taken away, to walking through this world with a fundamental attitude of suspicion of everything. Yeah? I don't know how many of you have read Socrates. Socrates is worth reading. By the way, please don't read books on Socratic thought. Just read Socrates, or more to the point, Plato. It's a lot easier. In fact, if I may just put in a useless piece of information for what it's worth, follow Martin Luther and the Reformation and just go back to the sources, okay? It is honestly a lot easier to read Plato than books on Platonism. Really, it is. These great ones are accessible to you. Read them. How many of you are at university? Great. How lucky you are. Can I say that your parents or whoever is paying for your fees have done one thing for you, and just one? They have bought you time. Don't chuck it away. You can always in the akker of what you can sit when you finished your studies. Okay, the akker is certainly not there anymore. He's still there. He's still there. Hey, man, I tell you, some things never change. You can sit in the pub till, your, till the cows come home when you're paying for yourself. But while you are a student, get your butt into the library and read. Okay? Read. You'll never have the time again. You will never have the time again. So read and read and read and read the sources. You really are to pursue a liberal, classical education. Read. I think you've got the point, right? Okay. Socrates was put to death. I mean, he was given the option of exile or suicide and chose hemlock. Not my choice, but anyway. For doing what? Do you know? Why was Socrates put to death? For corrupting the youth of Athens. The reason was because there were always only questions. So questions are great, but sooner or later, you can't subvert everything. Sooner or later, you have to take your stand on something. In my opinion, for all its value, and I'm going to say something about its value in a moment, in my opinion, for all its value, critical theory suffers from that blight. You can't go through life suspicious of everything. Sooner or later, you have to learn to trust something, or perhaps better, someone. All right. Are there any questions at this point? Critical theory is a fusion, fusion of Marxism and historicism, basically growing out of Frankfurt, but obviously in Abruzzo, but developing, shaping, out of which has come a hermeneutics of suspicion particularly with reference to ideologies as embodied in structures. 
with the goal for liberation or emancipation. Now, that is a radically, radically reduced, simplistic definition. But it's going to have to work for us, right? Because we don't want to spend five hours here looking at all the finer points of critical theory. Yes, my man. Tell me your name so I can... Marcel, like in the frozen yogurt. <laughs> Which, let me tell you, Marcel, was born in my time here in Stellenbosch in a little hole in the wall downtown. But anyway, there you go, Marcel von Rensburg. Yes, sir. You have a great name. Speak on. Mm. You're going to have to go and read, my brother. Yeah. You're going to have to... Sorry, I, I mean... I've got notes on what Marxism is, and maybe I can just give you one. But remember, you've got Marxism, then you've got Trotsky, Lenin, Stalin, and neo-Marxism, so things. But I guess historical materialism, that material conditions mold human history, essentially, Marx. Okay? Yes, sir. You, you get a bonus question because your name's Marcel. You're welcome to them. If you make any sense of me, you're a better man than I am or so. Yeah, no, sure thing, bud. Happy to do that. Okay. So, critical theory is not diabolical, nor is it divine. So, in place of the binary way of thinking, I mean, I'm happy to be binary on some things, but not this thing. In place of the binary way of thinking, we have to make space between the divine and the demonic for the merely human. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, but particularly chapter 2, God creates the man, right? Plonks him in the garden, brings him the animals. There's a whole literary form there that we're not going to debate about how to read Genesis. That is not what tonight is about. I'm just ensuring an invitation back at some point, again, to the happy world of Stellenbosch, especially if Grant's buying lunch again. In Genesis, the human beings are given a job. Part of the dominion is to do what? It's to name the animals. Taxonomy. Right, the birth of the scientific endeavor. What a wonderful thing. Peter Roth is shaking his head with gusto because he is the taxonomist of note. Okay. What are they not allowed to name? Well, can name him. No problem there. Not allowed to name good and evil. Lily Betratif, you get a prize. It's under your seat. In fact, if you look under your seat, no, no. No, we're not going there. My name is not Oprah. So the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, or the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, stands for claiming the right to define good and evil, naming good and evil. Only God gets to call something good or evil. Yeah? What? But there's freedom in the garden to name everything else because we are told whatever name the man gave it, that was its 
name. It's not like Adam goes and says, excuse me, and he says, well, hippocrocodacarecavorus or whatever. You know, mouse, quacha. No, no. The man is to name. It's part of his responsibility. So around human freedom, there is what? A fence that has been set by the word of God. Within the fence, there is no revelatory word. You and I are meant to live in God's world. This is what the wisdom literature in the Bible is all about, by the way. You and I are meant to live in God's world with our eyes open, observing life, listening to counselors, yes, watching the ant, drawing conclusions from the guy who never gets out of bed before 11 because he's bubbled from the night before, and who, surprise, surprise, plugs his medicine at the end of the year and then has to think of a good excuse for Pa and Ma, but Whatever it is, look at life and learn, yeah? It's not revelation from God, it's our human responsibility. Look at critical theory and learn. Don't demonize it. Don't deify it. Read, think, listen, and treat it for what it is. Just a human philosophy, or in fact, a blender for your philosophy and sociology. See it for what it is. What does Paul tell us? 1 Thessalonians 5.21. He's talking about prophecy, but the principle applies more widely, right? Test everything. Keep the good, reject the evil. Yeah? So I hope, one, you've got at least a rough working definition of critical theory, a hermeneutics of suspicion, which is particularly concerned about emancipation or liberation, which looks at ideology as the great enemy and its incarnation in structures. All right, look at everything, see it whence it comes. It's just a human invention like capitalism, which has got strengths and weaknesses, socialism, which has got strengths and weaknesses, etc., 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 etc. Look at it, see it for what it is, think about it, and ask yourself, what can I learn from this? What do I disagree with? So you say to me, thank you for asking the question, Mervyn. What can we learn from critical theory and what do you think we should disagree with? I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> so, a couple of things that we can learn. Number one, critical theory reminds us that our beliefs are often instructurated. That we often take our beliefs and we set up structures around them to reinforce them and protect them. Yep. I think it's worth taking that seriously. That we are not as independent and as objective as we think we are. That the structures that we have are actually the outworking and the outflowing of the beliefs that we hold. Yes? I mean, that's got to be so. Otherwise, what in the world are we doing? If we believe certain things passionately, surely we want to organize our lives, our families, our churches, our societies along the lines of those beliefs. Yeah, You set up structures 
to support your beliefs. That is a really important thing to understand because it means we will never, ever treat structures as if they are divinely inspired. Structures are just that. They are just structures. Now, some structures, I want to argue, are God-given. So unlike critical theory, I don't want to diss all structure and say we should just go through life living freewheeling. I mean, the problem with critical theory is it has now been overtaken by the influence of expressive individualism, right? Read Gnosticism. That is to say, not technically, formally, psychologically, but in terms of self at the center and all of life must revolve around what I want. By the way, that sounds like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? For the woman saw, she wanted, she took, she ate, and she gave. Remember that wisdom pattern? Instead of her living by the word of God, she decided to live by her own want. And the man was no different, mind you. He was right there with them at the Beckful Tanner. Or miskin met the back for Fruchter, I'm not sure. But either way, he was right there joining in. So recognize that structures actually are the embodiment of our beliefs. Otherwise, if we don't set up structures around what we believe, we clearly don't believe them. Yeah? And they are often set up with good intentions, right? I can probably show you lots of good reasons for the structures in my world. But just because we've inherited them doesn't mean that they have to be kept. Because life changes. And everything must be viewed, what? Critically. Look at everything. Weigh it up. Ask yourself the question, why is this here? Does it actually help us? Or should we change it? The second thing that we can learn from critical theory is that people matter more than structures. People matter more than structures. You matter more than the programs of Christchurch Stellenbosch. Right? You as an individual matter more than all the good structures that this church has had over all these years. You matter more. And if you don't fit into one of the structures, for good reason, not because you slup, and you just don't want to come to church or you don't want to plug into a small group or whatever it is. But if you don't, if you genuinely don't fit into one of the structures, then it is incumbent upon, I'm just giving Grant and everybody a job description here, by the way. It is incumbent on them to put you, the individual person, at the center and say, what is the best thing for this person? Not, how can I make this person fit into my structure? But how can I genuinely honestly help this person grow as a Christian, for example, in the church. Now, wouldn't it be nice if that was applied to politics? You know, I grew up, anyway, I grew up and I discovered only much later in my life that there was this department which was called the Staatsdienst. Yeah? We still have it today. It's called government services. What is wrong with that? It serves the government. In England, believe it or not, it is called the civil service. Now, whether it is the civil service or whether it serves the Tories is another matter. 
but at least they got the name right, yeah? That the structure is meant to serve the people, not the people, the structure. It sounds very much like Jesus, right? The Sabbath was made not for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. That's the problem with religion, isn't it? Religion is a structure which expects you to conform to its tenets with little or no concern for you, the person. Jy moet net inpas. Gedoop, gekategiseer, fumigated, the whole tutti, dan jy reg. So people matter more than structures. I think that is an emphasis that we can benefit from critical theory. When it comes to people and our human structures, and this may surprise you, when it comes to people and our human structures, the hermeneutics of suspicion is of the utmost importance. Let me say it again. The hermeneutics of suspicion, when it comes to people and our structures, is of the utmost importance. Can someone give me a Bible verse for that, please? There's one you weren't expecting. Right. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament prophets. It's in the Old Testament prophets in a prophet whose name begins with J. Don't say Jonah. His second letter is E. His third letter is R. Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah tell us? Chapter 17, verse 9, here is the hermeneutics of suspicion on steroids. The human heart is desperately deceitful and wicked. Who can understand it? So there's nothing wrong with the hermeneutics of suspicion, right? My problem with critical theorists is that they're not suspicious enough. What are they not suspicious of? They're not suspicious of themselves. When it comes to critiquing ideologies, they forget that they too are ideological and that they too are imposing a structure in the name of deconstructing the structures. So my view is, let's be suspicious. But listen, th this is why, friends, I tell you what, I have a, f a good friend and a colleague, Cameron Shabangu, who works up at our university. And man, that is a job and a half. Pray for Cameron, will you? He's a lovely Christian man. I love the brother. He's, so, he's such good value. When Cameron joined our staff five years ago, Cameron said to me, Mervyn, you need to understand that I'm a radical. I said to him, Cameron, Today, you and I are going to take a bet. Are you allowed to bet as Christians? It wasn't, there was no money changed. I said, today, I'm going to say something to you. No matter how radical you get, because I've got the Bible, I'm going to out-radical you. For sure, I will out-radical you. Because the Bible is the true subversive, yeah? The Bible is the thing that actually comes into our world and looks at our motives and not just our 
known motives, but penetrates right deep down to the deep, dark motives that you don't even know you have. And God, in his kindness, if he's kind to you, will bring those motives to light, as he's done for me many, 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 many times. But I think the thing that I love most about critical theory is its passion for freedom and liberation. I mean, dear friends, tell me this. I, I yeah, I need to be, yeah, it's hard not to get emotional at this point. I drive around Cape Town. And I often see people at the traffic lights begging. But the thing that finishes me off is when I see people with their children. And I look at those kids and I think of my own kids and the grinding poverty. And I say to myself, oh God, can we not liberate them from this? Do you not feel that? When you look at the statistics of gender-based violence in our country, you think, Lord, how do we liberate women and girl children and sometimes boy children and sometimes adult men from this incredible bondage in which they live? And you can multiply that across a whole range of areas, right? Substance abuse, just people in chains. I have no quibble with critical theory's passion for liberation. Yeah? I mean, it would be a hard-hearted person who said we were for enslavement. We are for bondage. So there's lots of things that I've benefited from my reading critical theory, but as I said, there are some things where I think it really lets us down. One, it's not suspicious enough, not by a long shot. Two, it has no place within its understanding of the world for revelation. It's ironic, actually, because a lot of this stuff, even Marx, is born out of religion. But there's no space in that worldview for the option, the possibility, that actually there is a good truth of which we need not be suspicious. That is a great lack. And actually, is why I think critical theorists are still falling around in the dark, pursuing something that seems to be beyond their ability to actually grasp. Part of the, part of the birth of critical theory actually came out of the disillusionment that was faced with the failure of the Marxist experiment in Germany. Just they saw the failure of the thing and said there's got to be something more than this, something better than this. What happens when your liberation theology becomes, or your liberation ideology, becomes the very structure from which you need to be liberated? What do you do then? Where do you go? The problem is that it has no place for a word from God. And that is perhaps my most fundamental criticism of critical theory is at least in its 
earlier incarnations, and I'm going to mention something at the end, just for your own personal reading, if you can sell your house, your car, your shirt, and pay for the book price. Um, actually, no, keep the shirt, it's fine. I think, fundamentally, it is the negativity of the sociology and the philosophy which leaves me feeling let down. Surely, we must be able to build and not just question. Surely, we must be able to have a positive alternative to the things that we just rubbish. Not every issue is a gender issue, friends. Not every issue is a race issue. Not every issue is a whatever issue. And to reduce everything to one thing, frankly, is just plain stupid. You can't go through life like that. This is what kinders do, ne? For kinders is it, oh, the world is born like four vacons. There's no middle ground. Not everything is about the thing that's bugging you. Really, it's not all about that. It ain't all about you, actually. So critical theory helps us to be more critical than we sometimes are. Some of us are just naive and we just assume that alles is rach. And we need to learn to question everything. But in the end, we need to find answers to our questions, right? We've got to move beyond Socrates, actually, with all due respects to him. And he was a great one. I want in this final two or three minutes before we open up for any other questions you may have or comments you may have. I want to just leave some things with you. I want to say to you that I 100% agree with critical theory that structure is not the answer. Now, I don't know what your background is. I don't know how you've been raised. I don't know what the voices that you hear in your head, bosses, them, masses, them, whatever the voice that haunts you. I, I don't know, or helps you, according to Proverbs, because it'd be stupid to ignore that voice just because it's the other voice, right? But ni alles wat maan pa says, rech ni. And are they just sinners like the rest of us? But I want to say to you, structure will never save you. It will never save you. Theology will never save you. Being an evangelical theologian will never save you. Going to the scriptures because you think in them is eternal life will never save you. Religion or politics or ideology or philosophy or scientism or money, any structure you put around your life will inevitably let you down. Why? Because people built it. It's like Babel. Promises much, 
But when crunch time comes, it delivers zero. What is the alternative to structure? Relationships. People. And in particular, a person. And this is for me the beauty of Christianity. If I may say so, Christianity is the true critical theory. Because it understands your sin and the brokenness of this world and it's not duped by it. It sees through the structures. <laughs> it sees through our folly. It is committed to liberation. How do we know that? Because Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus came, dear friend, to set you free. To set you free. And though he offers you a yoke, it is a light yoke and an easy burden. And if you come to him and stay with him, you will find a rest that no structure will ever give you. The second thing I want to leave with you is to encourage you to not restrict your Christianity to your own relationship with Jesus. I think, and I'm saying something that I'm on record of saying in our National Synod, so it's not as if I'm speaking behind my bishop's back. And even if I was, I'll tell him tomorrow, so that's fine. I think the great sin of Reach South Africa was not that it had the gospel, but that it restricted its application to the gospel to a few pet sins. Pornography, abortion, with no view to the whole of life and all the brokenness of the world in which we live. I was part of that. Trust me, I have repented of that. I've gone on my knees and said to the Lord, Lord, insofar as my preaching, yeah, in this, well, it was over there, actually, in that pulpit over there, back in the corner, I mean, the Oaks were, you know, next stop, out of the door, too many, so you better preach, my mate. My greatest sin in those days here was the minimalistic application of the gospel. You do not need a social justice gospel. Okay? But you do need to understand that a concern for justice is a necessary implication of the gospel you do have. We can't preach the implications of the gospel as the gospel. That is the way of death. But God help us if the application of our gospel is so narrow that we are blind to the world around us. So can I encourage you to follow the Reformed Fathers and build a biblical world view? Christians should have a view of everything. It's not a question of the kerkes here and the politics because that is a political statement. It is we should learn to see not our Christianity through our politics, which is what my American friends are beginning to discover. We should learn to see our politics and everything else in the light of 
the gospel. And then as God gives us opportunity to live it out. We are saved not by works, but by grace. Yes? Ephesians. It is by grace we have been saved, through faith. This not of ourselves, not of works, so that no one can boast. Do you know what verse 10 of that chapter says? We are saved for good works. Brothers and sisters, friends, make sure you do them. Because as Peter tells us, in that way, you will silence the criticism of ignorant and foolish people. Part of the reason we Christians get it in the neck is because we don't live our Christianity out in every area of life. Yep. I can't stop. So, as usual, um, very stimulating, Mervyn. Thank you so much for that. And... Um, perhaps for bringing us back, some of us back from the, the edge, and that's been very clarifying and helpful to us. Um, what you don't know is that Mervyn's dear wife, Alison, has undergone an, an operation today and is in hospital, and he still made it through to us tonight, and so we really are very grateful. Will you thank Alison, please? I think she's just glad to be rid of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, she might be too groggy to have noticed no, your absence. No, so. To be fair, she's asked me to please tell you that she wishes she could have been here. She has a new half a knee. She'll work that out. <laughs> um, so it'll be a while, but she'll be back. I'll send her our love, Thanks. please. On the 31st of July is our next Hot Topics. We have uh, Professor Pumla Gobodo Madikizela with us, and she um, is a research professor in psychology at this university, if you don't know who she is. She was the head of the psychology unit during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the 90s and uh, is a personal friend, has been to our church before, and she's going to be speaking about racism and forgiveness, which she is a leading world expert on. And so I'm sure you don't want to miss out on that. So keep watching this space. Um, it'll be, the f I think, the 31st of July is the first Monday of the third term, if I'm not mistaken, or one of the first few Mondays of the first term. So thank you so much for coming tonight. There are about, I think Nicole said, 86 of us here, which is wonderful. And uh, so glad that you could come. Uh, Mervyn won't rush off immediately. He'll be glad to keep chatting to you for a few moments. Um, but why don't I close for us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for Mervyn. Thank you for his ministry and his track record over many years. Thank you for his history here at this church. Above all, thank you for drawing him to yourself for saving him and for raising him up uh, for the task that you've given him. Lord, we want to be people who think your thoughts after you. And so we do pray that you would help us as we grapple with these things to think as Christians about the world. Help us to love the Lord Jesus Christ and people as a result of all that he has done for us. We pray that our love for others would flow out of how loved we have been by him, supremely seen in his death on the cross. Part us with your blessing, we pray, for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.